I love that though. I just wrote down like, what's more powerful than austerity, budgets and Brexit? A woman. <laughs> this podcast was recorded remotely and contains adult themes and language. Hello and welcome to TV DNA Unforgotten, season five, episodes five and six. Spoilers ahead for the final two episodes of season five of Unforgotten. So if you haven't yet watched the final episode, pause this podcast, go and watch it, and come back. My name is Adam Henning, and I'm here with DCI Grace Chapman. You should assume we know everything, Adam. Well, Grace, you do know quite a lot, it seems, because you were. Well, kind of half right with a lot of stuff and then bang on with some others. Was I? I was only half right with the with the Southern thing. What was I right on? Well, Tony Hume. Tony Hume. Yeah. Never never liked him ever since that LA signature. <laughs> Didn't trust him. I loved this. I thought it was really, really great. How did you find it? Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, a, a lot of my notes are just capital letters with exclamation marks which I think shows the kind of general general enjoyment, I think. Just the twists, the turns, the lies, the half-truths. And even up to sort of the middle of the last episode, I couldn't write anyone off. They do in that fifth episode almost clear Belay and, and Jay, don't they? And then it's kind of, well, there's still a chance because they were both still there. And we don't really know fully what happened. There was one moment, I think it was in episode five that was just classic unforgotten for me you had Belle and, and chef dave arriving at the station as fran was on the phone leaving a message for carol and then kaz heard about jay being out on bail and kind of three of the suspects were dealt with in about 15 seconds and it's just <laughs> so quick i've said it before they keep the plates spinning and keep you guessing about everybody until the last possible moment i think you said in our first episode the real star of unforgotten is the format and i can see that because a lot of crime dramas they're good but they tend to try and do the personal life of the police people and they try and do both at the same time but it feels like unforgotten really it's like 80 percent case yeah it's really fun. It's really, it's just a really fun crime drama. I mean, there's obviously a lot of bleakness and a lot of darkness with any of this kind of work, but it's also just quite fun to speculate and work it out as you go. Yes, absolutely. And I think the fact that they are all cold cases as well, and that they are crimes that have been committed a while ago. So the people that you're dealing with aren't dangerous serial killers, or, you know, they are people who've done bad things or committed crimes, but because they were so long ago, it takes kind of a little bit of the heat out of that. doesn't make it any less fascinating. And I do think Jesse James has just been a really, not that I spent much time with Cassie, but even if this was series one of Unforgotten, I would have really, really liked her. She's got great lines, great performance. I feel like it's been a really good addition to the, to the series and maybe is going to give it its new lease of life. Yeah, I think she's been brilliant. Really, really great. Loved her as a character, loved how she's developed over the course of the series and also really loved the situation that she's been in and how that relates to Sonny, which I want to get onto a bit later. But should we dive into the case? Let's do it. Let's go for it. Now, I don't remember Murray being out of the office ever before. (laughs) And here he was in Wales, of all places. (laughs) Wales? (laughs) Yeah, he finds out that Precious left for money reasons 
So the reason she left the, the sort of cult was because her other god was money. Yes. We go to the homestead, if you will, of the family of the Blessed Light. And very quickly, we learn that what's his face? David Bell is dead. We see a grave. So that obviously poo-poos my half-baked theory that Chef Dave was David Bell. Yes. The, the photo didn't look much like Chef Dave, did it? No. And I even last week, I was like, no, Grace, don't be daft. But yeah, uh, yeah, that was an immediate. I was like, okay, well, that's good. That one I can I can set aside that, that stupid theory. They've got many, many more, so that's fine. I mean, it was a long way to travel for what was quite a small amount of information, wasn't it? And they have spent a bit on travel in this season. I mean, Sonny's jaunt to Paris, again, didn't bring much intel back. And they mentioned Zooming often enough. I'm like, you would have got... Mentioned Zooming, and they also mentioned the fact that budgets are tight. But Murray wanted a jaunt. He's not left the office in five years, Adam. I know, I know. (laughs) What he does come back with is the fact that the money was from a sugar dad, an older man, where they have no more details than that. So they speculate that it was Tony Hume who was this older man, and that would explain how Precious got keys to the house. And then the big key thing that happens next is they trace a pay-as-you-go phone through Precious's bank statements. Yeah. But did Precious have a phone? Is that the pay-as-you-go phone? Yeah, it was Precious's phone, and then they linked that through to all sorts of other phone numbers, and that was then used in various different interviews that they had with people. Nice. So, yeah, we got... Confirmation from HR at social services that Carol was, well, they basically said he refused to give up his phone. So he was very suspect, possible sexual misdemeanor, they were saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Mehdi gives Kaz uh, the fact that Tony switched allegiances in late 2016 and he thinks it was linked to a mixed race petite woman. (laughs) Well, yeah, he was saying that most people go, as they get older, tend to start to go more right-wing. Yeah. But he was saying it's very unusual for someone to go the other way. And so something must have happened, something quite, quite, oh, who would ever go left-wing at him? Something very serious must have happened. Yeah, I, we'll get to Tony later, but his whole arc is a bit odd, I think. But he worked at Morgan Lavelle, which was the same place that Abele walked in with an air pistol. So yes. that was kind of a key revelation. And it would have been, that I, I sat down and worked out the dates, it would have been around the time when Precious was born. So I thought you were right about the theory that Tony was Precious's father. But that was a red herring, because it turns out he's actually Bele's father, which we learn later on, right? I mean, even at this point, I'm still struggling a little with the family tree. Okay. I well, do. I think I've got it. It's just because I was I was so sure of my theory. Yeah. That I've confused the two family trees. But essentially, Tony Hume is Bele's father. Yes. Grandfather, Joseph and Jay's great grandfather. Basic family tree, Grace. Got it. Yeah. But we also meet the doorman, little cameo for the doorman. Oh, Dorman. Did you recognise who the Dorman was played by? Stop it. Who? It's Derek Griffiths. From? Now, you're too young to really remember Derek Griffiths. But when I was about Otis's age, he was pretty much everything to me. Because he was in play school and he did the voice of Bod, which was one of my favourite kids' shows. 
I mean, this is even earlier than you and me that we were talking about with Damo on the other episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so happy for you. Yeah, I was just thrilled a bit to see him. Yeah, props to Derek Griffiths. <laughs> so the, the idea is that Bele came in with an air rifle. Yeah. And that he then downplayed the incident later on because there was obviously pressure put on him from above. Yes. And it was what she said that was the key bit of information which was, I want to speak to my dad. I want to speak to Tony fucking Hume. Very helpful that it was like, I want to speak to my dad and here is his name, viewers. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise I'd have been going off on, there is like that elderly man we saw in the street on episode one. Could it be him? <laughs> we talk about our suspects or not suspects anymore. Now we know what happens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other the other stuff that came out of the, the case was just this sort of blackmail plot that involving Carol. That was kind of how they linked him in through it, which came through Fran getting the emails from social services, right? They had to do a bit of digging because he deleted a load of stuff. Oh, yeah, I really liked the kind of, I'd say arguably a little bit too much information about social services like tech wall. Yeah. <laughs> to know, like, what's been wiped, what hasn't been wiped, what might, I was like, just Give me the key info. Although my favourite minor character of the whole series was the tech guy who was digging into the laptop they found, Precious's laptop. <laughs> yeah, didn't blink twice at that folder. No, <laughs> folder full of upskirting photos. <laughs> yep, 43 of them. Hi, Rez. <laughs> I've counted. <laughs> I've double-checked and they're all there. <laughs> Some on a bus. <laughs> I'd forgotten about him. He was gold. Okay, so yeah, I think the bribery, I think, well, we'll come to it, but I think bribery is definitely a, a theme of the series. There's a few instances where people have felt backed into a corner and done things they shouldn't. Should we talk about Carol? Because I feel like he wasn't the main focus, probably, of the series, let's, let's face it. Yeah, I mean, I have, like, what was the point of Carol? I mean, he was a red herring, and we left him at the end of episode four, we thought he was returning to the house with the watches that he was going to sell but hadn't sold. And then weirdly, the only fallout of that was that Elise kicked him out because she spoke to the police who said he's a person of interest in a murder and it might be sexual in nature. Like, he obviously then had sold the watches and didn't get arrested by the police in Paris. Yeah. It felt like there was a bit of drama added at the end of episode four that was just then quickly swept under the carpet. I mean, I guess the consequences of his actions that he has to go and live back home with his parents. Is that it? Yeah. I mean, I was like, it didn't really explain why he was going back to the UK, but I guess because he had nowhere else to go. She chucked him out. But yeah, we learn about obviously about the bribery and that he never handed any cash over for his laptop. And at that point, I was like, oh, inter- that is very interesting. He was b- He was back kind of middle of the list for me. But he never really got much higher up than that. Yeah, we don't really learn much more about him until his final interview, do we? No, he's really not in it very much at all. He confesses to being depressed and fixated on bad thoughts. And also says he was, it was a week after he was assaulted for the second time, I think, that he took his first upskirting photo. And he says, I'm not blaming it on that, or I'm not using that to excuse my actions. But it does seem to be the message of hate leads to people being more upset and potentially doing nasty things. Yeah, it's definitely another theme of cycles of, I guess, trauma and then that spiralling into 
worse things later on down the line and not that upskirting or you know racial attacks are very much on a level but um I think yeah I really liked Sonny's when he was like yeah you know he was trying to make the link and you know he's I took my first photo and and Sonny was like but why yeah I mean I really don't get the upskirting thing I mean like you know it was even in 2016 like the internet was here by then right I mean he says it was like this momentary relief of doing something wrong but that it quickly turned into shame yeah I do find it quite a bizarre thing to do oh god it's completely odd and creepy and you know it's just so weird but like I just found the link just I didn't really buy it yeah it just wasn't a great plot for what was essentially a red herring I guess the only thing he did that was pertinent to the whole thing was identify Tony. So he has to go back to get his laptop, which he does, I think, the next day after the shootings have happened. And he sees this old man, well, sees the floors have been mopped and then sees this old man with a mop and bucket. I love the detail of the mop and bucket. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, how do we, like, make it completely link the mopped floor if he could have just seen Tony, that would have been enough. But no, he has to be carrying a mop and bucket. But it's one of the things that Sonny and Jess used to finally get Tony to confess. So I think that almost, almost justifies his inclusion in the show. Now, I have a question that confused me a little bit. You know, he says that he took his laptop and left because it was, quote, his property. That was what he said. But then Jay later on says that he had the laptop two laptops so there was his laptop that he'd left there by mistake and when he left it there precious transferred the photos from his laptop to her laptop and the laptop that jay jay took the laptop and some of her clothes has like the last belongings of his mum basically right because for a minute there i only had about a minute left of the show and jay's like i took a laptop and i was like there's another oh my god like Carol was lying. Get him back in. <laughs> it's funny when they take Jay's, when they take the laptop, when they break into Jay's house and, and take his laptop, he's like, he's, he is kicking off at the police massively. And you have to sort of realise why when you learn that that was one of the only belongings that he had left from his mum. I think his words were, Grace, that's my stuff. I'll fuck you up. Lovely. Lovely. Um, I think we can leave Carol. Yeah. Should we talk about ballet next yeah let's do that that makes sense I think early on in episode five she has this interview with the police doesn't she and she claims that she never touched precious but she says why did she hate me so much genuinely sorry if I failed her I never hurt her and she's so upset in this interview that I actually believed like you know I found it all quite believable me too and I think it's not not true right no, I, yeah, I, that's, that's it. I think it was, it's difficult to know who to believe, right? But I thought it was genuine emotion coming from Bele and I believed her. And at that point, I, I, you know, I was like, yeah, she definitely didn't intentionally kill Precious. And then in between that, we get the backstory of her childhood and the forced abortion that was attempted on her, which was really grim. And give props to Chef Dave. He's been thrown a lot of new information in the last two episodes. Did he say a word? No, he's quite, he is quite quiet throughout it all. I mean, this does explain the, the FASD stuff, doesn't it? Because it, essentially her, her grandfather tied her up and poured vodka down her. I hadn't even made the connection with the FASD, of course. Yeah. 
Yeah, that really does paint a picture, much more of a picture, doesn't it? There's definitely a, a generational shame within that is just passed on to Precious and then passed down to the boys. But yeah, then she throws away the op- opportunity to upscale her small family-run vegan restaurant. Yeah. Well, she says, I don't know, my notes say, I don't know whether she, whether these are lines that came from the show or whether I've just written them down, but a uh, sense of shame and guilt, the system failed her. I think she definitely says the damage is still in there. She says that and she says that when she throws it all away, she says it's all just noise. Yeah. So I think obviously this case and learning that her daughter had died inevitably is bringing back a huge amount to her. And she's probably just like, you know what, this is all just this is all just bullshit. I don't. I can't do this. So I kind of get, I, I understand that for her. And then we next see her sleeping outside Tony's house. Yeah, this scene with M, which was, again, I think the last time we saw M as well, I didn't love this scene really. She says, I loathe him, always have and always will. That's the message she wants M to pass on. But she also says, you knew how many lives he ruined and did nothing. Felt a little bit like a heavy handed guilt trip. Yeah, you know, she was just, calling her out on her privilege and her complicity in keeping that inequality going through yeah. just turning away and not looking at it. Because yeah. I feel like um, noticing the burner phone, not really letting Tony fully confess, or if he did, she's like, you know, you're a good man. Uh, selective hearing, shall we say. Yeah. Well, she then finds out in the car, doesn't she, about the well, there's this body that's being dig- dug up at the house, right? They're, the police get this anonymous call and they find this body, skeleton male, two bullet holes in the head, which they later identify as Joseph Bell. We'll get into the whole Joseph J bit in a little while. But Belle gets arrested. But they basically, they, that house is linked to a Belle. She was the tenant in 2016 of that house. So she gets arrested. And then we get the story of her mum, who worked at Morgan Lavelle, and of Tony Hume raping her one night. Yeah, that bit in the car when Ibele hears on the radio about the body and looks worried. She did creep up my list then, but it wasn't for long. But her mum left her a letter before her mum committed suicide. She left a letter for Ibele, which she got didn't get until her 18th birthday. She says she was seen as a child of evil. And when she approached Tony, he threatened her with violence. So she got some DNA tests and blackmailed him. She says, whatever he's told you is a lie. It's interesting. I think we probably have to talk about some of the other characters before we get to the final bits of... What's good is the kind of mother and daughter reflection for Precious and Abele. Like, even though they obviously didn't get on and they didn't spend a huge amount of time with each other in Precious's adult life, both of them use bribery or blackmail to get back at men or take some power back. Both were shamed by their family, both have issues with addiction. It kind of made Precious feel more real in a way because Abele was living and talking about the things that she experienced. And you're like, well, Precious definitely had the same experiences. So I thought that was really clever and a really nice mother-daughter linking that worked really well. Yeah, and that sense of, you know, the system failing them all, really, and Tony being such a representative of that system. I mean, he was untouchable, right? I mean, they basically felt like he was untouchable. He ruined millions of people's lives through his policies, but also directly ruined their lives through through the shame that they had to go through. And he just, you know, whistled his way through the world. Should we talk about Tony then? Go on then. (laughs) He says early on in episode five, the older I get, the more I see the mistakes, the things I didn't achieve, the wrongs I did. And again, this whole thing of him only having so long left to live and the things that he wanted to achieve, it kind of all 
becomes a little bit muddied for me, but he tries to flee to Zurich. But Murray, out of the office again, gets on the plane just in time. I kind of wish he'd had a sort of like running down the runway after the plane and jumping onto a wing sort of scene, but it wouldn't have been very <laughs> unforgotten. There was lots of really interesting stuff there. Now, it might be remembered, but back to, you know, when Mehdi talks about how he changed his mind in 2016, does he say it must have been a woman? Yeah, Mehdi is the one who sort of points out, well, he he comes up with all these different things that it could have been, like it, he was a Remainer, so it could have been about Brexit, and, but he doesn't think it was any of those. He thinks it was because of this woman. I love that, though. I just wrote down, like, what's more powerful than austerity, budgets and Brexit? A woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and also that he was spotted rowing with her, that was quite important, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because Mehdi said he, he felt it was clearly an intimate relationship. But he's straight off the plane, straight into the interview room. And initially, lying his ass off again, saying you never met either of them. Come on, Tony. Come on, Tone. Come on now. There's a line, have you watched the latest, The Last of Us episode? No, I'm so behind. There's, it's not really a big spoiler, I don't, I don't think it spoils anything at all. But there's a line in there where they say... Nobody who's infected, if you're infected, you're doomed to die, basically. Nobody who's infected fights this hard to stay alive. And it made it did make me wonder why Tony was fighting so hard, given that he knew he didn't have very long to live, why he was trying to escape, abandon his wife <laughs> and his dogs and escape to Zurich, why he wasn't just coming clean about it all in the first place. But that aside, they throw up all this evidence. There's petrol station receipts and ultimately... Carol identifying him, right? I loved the petrol receipt. They were like, so you've never you've never been there. So yeah. you've got your car 60 yards away. All right. I mean, it is just part and parcel of it, isn't it? And I do think it's really clever because the no comment stuff, like they could no comment their way through or every interview and deal with it later on in, in the courtroom. But the way that Unforgotten does it is that they give them the powers to needle and and come at it from different angles and have these little other little bits of evidence that they can use. And I think Sonny and Jess played it really, really well. But yeah, his eventual story is that Joseph called him. He went to the house, called Belay on the way, and then there was an argument. Joe pulled a gun. Precious went for the gun. Joe was killed by accident in the struggle, and then Precious killed herself. So that is Tony's story. And then Belle turns up and he agrees to take Joe's body and she says she will deal with Precious's body. Turns out he was the one who called the station and he says he did that because he panicked. But really, he was clearly trying to pin it all on Belle, right? He buried the body in Belle's garden because he had keys and it was private. But I think it was always an insurance policy, right? Don't you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was like, oh, it's just... Oh, I was just passing by this house and I saw a foot sticking out of the ground. Yeah. <laughs> also, what when the anonymous phone call? What I like, what did he say? Like that body was buried. Like, what did he my dog went sniffing around? I mean, we'll I, never know. But... I can't remember whether he says there's a body buried in I can't I can't remember. I think he calls up and says there's a body buried in this garden and it belongs to Joseph Bell. And he doesn't give his name. Because it's after they hear about the J. Joseph thing that we're going to come on to fairly soon. <laughs> I, saw, and I think they even say themselves, like, what? The same day? Yeah. I like the idea of Tony Hume, like, putting on a funny voice. Yeah. 
But so Bellet then puts the body, Precious's body, in the chimney, right? And gets a mate to plasterboard it up. And what I found interesting was that they both hid bodies in each other's houses. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. It's like, right, you take that to my house. I'll put this in, the, in your house. <laughs> yeah. But they did, neither of them knew that that's where the bodies were. Maybe instinctively they were both thinking long, like some long-term thing of like, if this ever comes out, I can try and pin it on the other person. Yeah, I definitely think that's true in Tony's case. I'm not so sure about Bella. Although, again, it's a little bit cloudy for me why she, you know, she says she spent the night sort of cradling her dead daughter's body. But then, what, the next morning just decided to shove it up the chimney, out of the way. Yeah. Of the smokestack, like RIP. Yeah. But Tony, now what, remind me of what Tony, if you know it, amongst all this information, why was, why did Tony say he didn't call the police? I don't think they asked him that question. Ibele says that Tony persuaded her that because she had a criminal record, it would go badly for her. Yes, but that wasn't, that's what she said. So I just couldn't remember what Tony said, but maybe I think you're right. I think they didn't ask him, which was, you know, an oversight in my uh, humble opinion. Yeah, presumably because of his reputation, I think they just assumed that him being an MP and being in a house where there were two dead bodies probably wasn't going to go down well. He talks about the lies we tell ourselves and he says he couldn't bear the truth about himself, so he snuffed it out, which gets a slow clap from Jess. Oh, I loved that. I mean, the use of the word it was really horrible. I thought he was maybe referring to Joseph by it and it just makes him that bit much more of a monster I think but oh this I mean I put the slow clap in capital letters I loved it and then you get just some of the best lines of the series from Jesse which is you know you're just trying to improve your wiki page you'll only ever be remembered as a rapist who murdered his great-grandson that's your fucking legacy fella I hope they throw away the key of course I hope they throw away the key it was really great. And I feel like she says later that wasn't very professional. And Sonny says he took the words right out of my mouth, which I loved. But I feel like there was just a lot of general anger towards men coming out of Jesse in that moment. Which is fair play. She's had dick move Steve to deal with, which again, we'll cover at the end. Dick move Steve under the dinosaur duvet. Yeah. <laughs> right, we've got Jay left now. We talked a little bit about some of his stuff already, but he gets interviewed. He's no commenting his way through a lot of this stuff. And then they, I can't remember what question he gets asked, but he basically says, you don't understand nothing. Are you talking about how they get him to open up? Yeah. Sonny says to him, no child should have to experience that. Why don't you tell us your side of the story? Oh, that's right. Because Sonny's the one who's been listening. He's sort of saying, I've spoken to all of these people about your, you know, your upbringing. And I've spoken to your foster parents and all the rest of it. And then he says, I'm not Joseph Bell. It's not J for Joseph. It's J for J. I'm Joe's half-brother. Oh, so many exclamation marks in the notes. <laughs> I think one of them is like, my theory, my theory. <laughs> I, again, I wrote Grace was right, two exclamation marks. But we learned that Jay's birth was never registered, so he wouldn't be taken into care. So Joseph got taken into care because his mum was a drug addict. So she never registered Jay's birth. He was homeschooled by his dad, spent some time with him, sometimes with her. His dad was called Eric Royce and he was a traveller. So he's Jay Royce. So Joseph Bell, Jay Royce, different people. (laughs) 
But he was 14 or 15 when his mum was killed. So he's younger, he's the younger brother. And he adopted his brother's identity at 16 in order to get benefits. And Sonny asks, did your brother not need his identity? <laughs> and this is when he tells his lawyer to leave. He says, leave, bruv, which I loved to the lawyer. And then he basically answers the question, no, he didn't need his identity because he was dead. He's really? dead and he's buried in a garden. But then he won't say anymore. He's scared of people who would hurt him because of what he's seen. And you can, Im- you can imagine it. Basically, he hasn't had a parent since he was, what, 14, 15 years old. He's survived somehow on his own since then. And all that he's seen is that these powerful people are capable of doing these horrible things. Yeah, I mean, he witnessed the deaths of his half-brother and his mother and nothing has been done about it. And he says people said they'd look after Joe. They were lying, all of them. Apart from being mind-blowing, totally changes your view of Jay. We see him at the beginning of episode six bringing in flowers for the nurse that he mugged and kind of reminds you of the fact that he wanted to get out of that life. That's what his main aim was. Before he gets arrested by the armed response unit, he's trying to get away with Cher, isn't he? He's got, he says, money's not not an obstacle anymore. Yeah, and I just little shout out to Cheryl telling Jane is to sort his life out. Although she ditches him for Jordan because he's got hot water. Fair enough. <laughs> it's cold. And then I love this other bit. This is another moment I really, really loved in the show was when Jay finds Sonny and Jess at his flats and Sonny pleads with him to trust them. You know, he says, if you stay silent, he probably will win again. And I think this is a moment where Jess gets to see Sonny's powers and skills and, you know, his ability to sort of connect with people. And, and that the time that they take on these cases is, is valuable. It's not just about completing forms and getting, getting things ticked off. They, they take the time to do the case right. They very immediately fell into the, the roles that were right for them, didn't they? Like Sonny being that kind of empathetic, really trying to connect with everyone, like you say, and Jesse always sitting, leaning back in the chair or being behind him and kind of silently judging people and trying to really read them. They immediately fell into that. And that's, I think that's obviously where they do their best work. But yeah, and then I keep wanting to call him, it's Jay Joseph Jordan. It's too much, Adam. (laughs) Couldn't they have at least given them a different initials? No, because then then you wouldn't have been in like episode one or two or whatever it was. Jay is clearly Precious's son. Just Jay for Joseph. David Bell, Chef Dave. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he calls a ballet his nan when he's being questioned, which I thought was a very colloquial, friendly way to describe someone he didn't really know. She didn't know about him at all. Belle had no knowledge of this second child, the second son that her daughter had. And he had never really met her, he, but he knew of Bele. But yeah, he tells the story slightly differently. So Bele's story matches up with Tony's. Mm-hmm. But Jay says that it was Precious who was killed by accident. And then it was Tony who shot Joe in the back of the head. So he pins a murder on Tony, which Tony later confesses to. Yeah. Did he confess to it? Yes, he did. But then that's confused me now. Because I think Tony, one, he knew that he was going to prison anyway, but also I think because he's dying, he was just like, yeah, I'll take the... Maybe it was him being shamed by Jess about his wiki page. I don't know. It is a bit confusing. (laughs) It's Um, a bit confusing now because of what Jay says at the end. Yeah. So So, Bella comes to his flat because Sonny and Jess 
asked her, do you know who Jay Royce is? And she said no, and they clearly told her. And says, I'm, I'm your nan, Jay. I'm your nan, Jay. And he says, I told them nan, I told them he did it. I lied. Mum killed Joe and then shot herself. It was all his fault. What's good for the goose? Yeah. So, wait, did Tony do it? No. No, he didn't. But he's this is his last attempt to rid himself of the shame that he's accumulated by being an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I think it's kind of, Tony's lied all his life. I've lied now in order to get one over on him. So this is like the finally the worm that turned and he's getting his comeuppance. I don't uh, think he needed it. I, was, I would have been quite happy without that fact that Jay lied. I mean, I quite like it because it shows that no one's perfect in this show and people do want to take revenge. So I, I quite, I mean, I quite liked it. But when Jay said, I lied, I was like, oh my God, Jay did it. <laughs> <laughs> I literally was all over the place at this point. I was like, oh my God, young Jay took the gun without knowing how to use it and shot by accident his half-brother. That's where I went. Oh, I'm no, I mean, it's, what what was really nice actually it was a really touching scene between Jay and, and Belay, and it was quite nice that they had found each other now. Maybe Jay can go and be a, a commie chef at the vegan restaurant. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, a little bit of structure. Yeah, I have to say, I thought you know, I really like that last scene. Did bring a little tear to my eye because amongst all of the pain, there's there's this little bit of hope that they might have a relationship now, and Belay might be able to look after him a little bit. And Jay's clearly got money off Tony, right? Because he tells Cher that there's no worry about money. Money's not an issue. So maybe he can now be the investor in the vegan restaurant to help them grow. So did Tony ever know who... I know he was sat opposite him on that big table and then got thumped by him. Did he know who he was? <laughs> Do we know who he is? No, I'm joking. I don't think he did. I don't think he ever did. I don't... I can't Who's remember. Like, Who are you? Oh, yeah. run ourselves into the ground here, Adam. <laughs> let me just let the dog out and then we can talk about Sonny and Jess. Okay. Sonny and Jess. Sonny and Jess. I was going to say Sonny and Cher. <laughs> oh my God, there should be a Sonny and Cher spin off. <laughs> well, the first conversation they have is uh, Sonny asking her, Does anyone call you Jesse? And he says it's only just occurred to him that her name is Jessie James. And she says, Jesus, we're in worse bloody trouble than I thought. It was a really lovely moment, banter between the two of them. Yeah, I did wonder how you felt about having made the same joke as Sonny. But yeah, that was a little moment of, a little, nice little moment of connection. I mean, the first time we see Sonny, I think is, is that chat with Sal, no? Yeah, quite possibly. Side note about that chat, was Sal yeah. just sat in the dark? Yeah, I think so. Right, because he puts the light on and she's just sat there. Yeah. I had to watch it twice to be sure there wasn't another light on. But She's placed the bags in the doorway so that they'll be the first thing that he sees. And then she's oh. sat there in the dark waiting for him to come home. Power move, yeah. Yeah. yeah, this was a really touching scene, I thought, between them, especially when he was, she's like, you know, your proposal. He's at that, he said at the time it felt utterly genuine. And I thought it's just really lovely, really small performances going on of essentially he says he felt stuck and lost and he does really want to be with her. And then, you know, as she leaves, he goes, I'm so, so sorry, my love. And it just felt like it really captured the feeling of a breakup 
when you don't want to. There was some lovely dialogue in this scene. I mean, she says, you owe me nothing. It feels like you only proposed because you were lost. You know, he's talking about the fact that he doesn't know where he is and that he's stuck and that he's thrown and all of these different things. He's all over the place. And she says, it's the most you've said in nine months. With time, we could probably ride this out, except I want a baby and you don't. Quite a big thing. Mm. It was just very sad and very sorry, wasn't it? But it was a lovely... It was really like exactly how conversation, like no one's really ultimately done anything wrong. It's just that you can't compromise on something like that. Yeah. Contrast that with Jess's situation. So she she goes to her brother-in-law's and, you know, asks him, did he tell you he was fucking my sister? And then Steve later denies all of this. He says that they kissed, but that she's made it all up. And then he just comes back. He just sort of rocks back up and he's sort of, playing with the kids and and even her mum is supporting his return you know nothing's perfect not even you I think Steve might find himself up a chimney at some point on the smoke shelf they both have relationships ending right Sonny's is really Sonny's fault Jess's isn't her fault his ends with him alone but she's stuck with him involved in large part due to the fact that they have kids together which is the reason that Sonny's relationship ends because he doesn't want kids. I mean, it's just so interconnected. Yeah, totally. I just don't buy Dick Move Steve's uh, Your Sister Was Like. I think the line from her was, so my sister is telling a lie that makes her look worse. Yeah. It's like, and then he says, you know what she's like? She's got issues. I just thought this, I'm not buying this at all. Like, why on earth would her sister say that? So he's just wheedled his way back in. And then I think, yeah, the, the scene where Jesse comes home and she can hear him doing bedtime. She just felt really, like you say, really stuck. And then to her mum to not support her, it just it got me. It was frustrating in a really good way. I mean, it definitely, I think that we're going to be back for season six and, and it's going to be a continuing element of the story, I'm sure. But what a horrendous situation to be in. It's almost like she's kind of being cornered to forgive him but she says quite explicitly I don't believe him like I know that's not true he definitely has sex with my sister so she seems really sure on that we'll see we'll see in the next series whether whether dick move Steve is is kicking about I really hope not but I wouldn't be surprised if he was just because that's a really interesting thing to see play out yeah, but well, he says in the first episode that he'd slept with somebody else, but he just won't tell her who. If it really isn't her sister, tell her who it was, you know. And why would you tell her you slept with someone else if you only kissed someone else? Again, you're making yourself look worse. Yeah. I don't <laughs> buy it, Steve. An, an odd chap. But yeah, lovely moment at the end of the, the whole series, just to wrap everything up. They can charge Tony with both the murder and the rape, which they didn't expect to get both. And Sonny says it's a 57-year-old crime, which is a Bishop Street record. And Jess says, for now, what a turnaround from the beginning of the series of her not wanting to do any old cases. And then she says, call me Jesse. Then the exchange goes, have you ever held up a stagecoach? I've held up a bar. Now you're talking. I'll get my horse. Lovely. Lovely. I'm sad not to have the coffee buying, but... Oh, yeah. It wasn't far off that. I don't know why that little interchange between them reminded me of when Cassie used to sing that song about Sonny. I don't remember that. It must only be in episode one of series one. 
What's the song she sings? Daddy, da, 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 da. that one. Right. She does. She sings that song to him. And, like she makes a joke of his name, and it becomes like, well, it clearly didn't become a thing, but I really liked it. Yeah. And so I think that really reminded me of they made a little joke about Jesse James, and it was nice. Absolutely. No, it's a lovely link back to series one, episode one. Cast your mind back. <laughs> I only just watched it two weeks ago. Overall, big ticks for Sinead Keenan for the show and the format and the, it's, its longevity, I think, is, it does still work. I mean, I definitely had some quibbles about Carol with a K being a bit of a naff red herring storyline and a few other minor things. But overall, really, really enjoyable show. Yeah, definitely. And I think extra props to Sinead for filling the almighty boots of Nicola Walker. It's not just anyone that she had to go in with. And I'm, apparently she had quite a lot of reservations about doing it, but she did a great job. Like, Jessie James is bold. She's blunt. She's smart. She's actually quite funny when she when she actually tries. And I think we haven't really talked about Chris Lang as, as, as the writer of the show. There are probably more zinger lines in, in Happy Valley, but I think this is just such a well-crafted, you know, the way he plots and the way the narrative sort of develops over the course of these six episodes, pretty perfectly timed, I think. And also, I think the the realism of this show is the detail of the police work and how they go about piecing these things together, I think, feels really, really authentic. Yeah, good job, Chris. Fab. So what are we going to be watching next, Grace? Well, I mean, I'm just holding my breath until Tom Wanscans comes back on my screen. (laughs) I have been re-listening to our Succession episodes. I'm nearly all the way through them, and they do make me laugh. But I think they're very, very funny conversations that we had about the last season of Succession. I mean, if you think there's innuendo in the House of Dragon episodes, you haven't heard anything yet. <laughs> but no, the Roy family swingometer and the Who Will Be CEO competition will be revisiting. And our favourite lines of the episode, I think, was another feature we had. I just, yeah, I can't wait. I think there's a real pattern at the moment of series knowing when to end. I think White Lotus maybe has only got a cut one or two more series in it. And then obviously the big reveal, this is Succession's last. And I think if you look back to the West Wing, the Sopranos, the Wire, like, oh, incredible feats of storytelling, sure. But definitely some saggy old episodes in there. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I'm really, really looking forward to the final season of Succession. It's been, saw the new trailer recently and it's just, it keeps popping up as uh, when I'm watching things as as the trailer for what's coming soon. Before then, of course, we've got the final episode of The Last of Us to come. And we've also got ongoing episodes on The Mandalorian. And we're going to be starting Ted Lasso and Yellow Jackets. Christ. We're going to have a lot to cover. But Succession is going to be the main one. And that's the one we'll be doing episode by episode. The others we're probably going to do in two episode chunks like we have this. In Succession, I believe most, if not all, TV DNA hosts are going to be involved. So, Adam, you are going to have a job keeping us all in line. Well, I was wondering whether you wanted to take over hosting for Succession and, you know... <laughs> Show to me. Not as a baptism of fire. It's going to be very, very difficult. We might have to rotate people in and out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for it. I can't wait. It's, it feels like, you know, another TV event. Another exciting thing we're going to be starting to do for our Spotify listeners is adding polls and Q&As to our 
episodes. So if you are listening on Spotify, if you go to the episode description, you'll start to see these little polls. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the questions that we ask. And if you want to get in touch, you can contact us on the social media at TVDNAPod or by email to TVDNAPod at gmail.com. Lovely. Bab. So I think that'll do us, won't it? Yeah, that'll do us. Good luck for the Last of Us finale. My thoughts and prayers are with you at this difficult time. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, final shout out for Unforgotten. We won't forget it soon. Beautiful. Sorry, I'm being distracted by a small boy. (laughs) Hang on. We might get a few interruptions. Is it Otis? Oh, I love Otis. I mean, I can't just sit here and fill. Maybe I can. Maybe I'll do my best Adam impression. Otis is currently on the toilet and Margot's whining to be let out. So I've opened the back door and now she's not going out because it's raining. Gosh, that is... Tell that story again. Otis is now on the toilet, so I'll have to go and deal with that in a second. Margot also needs the toilet, so I've let her out the back door. Do you need the toilet? No, I'm fine. (laughs) I'm fine too. Anybody else in the toilet? <laughs> Quick head count. One of the other things I wanted to point out was that Jess called Kaz Kaz when she came up with the stuff about Morgan Lavelle. She said it's effing gold. I have to mind my language because I've got a little visitor here. So you going to say hello? Yeah. Come and say hello. Hi, Otis. Say hello to Grace. Hiya, how are you? Now, I hear from your dad that you've been watching The Traitors. Yes. What do you think? Good. Good. Do you think the traitors are good? Yeah. I watched the traitors to win. I like that. Do you think you'd be a traitor if you were in traitors or would you be a faithful, do you think? I think I'd be a traitor. Yeah, good. I like, yeah. Good, good stuff. <laughs> right, what do you want? Can you turn the telly on? Turn the telly on. Okay. All right, it's the last thing. your son, Adam. Turn the telly on. Yeah. <laughs> You're not watching any more traitors though. No. We finished it. What treats you having? A marquee. So what oh yeah, nice. That looks like a yeah, lovely.